The reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. More than conquerors. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here ends the reading. Well, hello. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 8. We've been in Romans chapter 8 now for a couple of weeks. What incredible things there are in Romans chapter 8. As we come to the conclusion of Romans chapter 8, we realise that what's in here really concludes this major section, not just from the start of verse 1 of chapter 8, but chapter 5 right through to chapter 8. In fact, it could be argued that we stretch right back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power of salvation. And we see that salvation worked out in chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7, and then conclusion here, chapter 8, the incredible security that there is for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are absolutely, definitely, eternally secure. And that's what we see here. As we come to these precious words, why don't we pray and ask God to enlarge our vision of him and our understanding of his great gospel. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for these words. We thank you for them. They are like honey, Father, your word is a light. Father, your word brings us life. Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in what is in here, that we would love what is in here, that we would indeed live by what is in here. Help us grasp what is in here, the picture of salvation. Lord, the security that the gospel gives those who believe. Lord, we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So how secure do you feel as far as God is concerned? I'm sure there are some moments when you're feeling really secure, maybe when you've been to a service or when you've been with a friend or when you've been to a Bible study, you feel really secure, all is well with the world as far as God is concerned. But I'm sure there may be moments when you don't feel just exactly that way. There are moments perhaps whenever you've had an issue or a struggle, there are moments when even 
perhaps a friend has said something to you. There are moments perhaps whenever the day maybe is not going your way and you feel as if God doesn't love you. Is that the case? Maybe even you feel that with the persecutions and sufferings that you're going through, as far as being a Christian is concerned, you feel that God has abandoned you, that he's left you behind, that he's forgotten about you, and that his love for you has somehow changed, or his attitude towards you has somehow changed. Well, this chapter and this part of this chapter tells us that that will never be the case. If you think that God changes in his attitude towards you, if you're a Christian, if you think he changes even slightly, this chapter tells us nothing will happen to those who are in Christ Jesus. That his promise, his love, will remain eternally constant for those who are his. And we see this really, really clear. In these first few verses, verses 28 to 30, we're told that the Christian is secure, eternally secure. So let's have a look. They're incredible words. We'll try not to rush over them. There's so much in them, we could do about three or four sermons on them. Let's listen to them. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sometimes whenever we've heard these words, what we may have heard is that in all things there is the good for those who love him. That somehow we lose the subject of this sentence. Just listen to it again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We have that subject and we have the verb. What happens? Well, in all things God is working. And when he says all things, he really means all things. Not just some things, not just the good moments, not just the bad moments, everything, all of our lives, all of our circumstances, every aspect of the world's history, certainly the part of the world's history which we occupy in our short lifespan. That in everything that happens to us that we experience, God is working. Sometimes what we hear when we hear that verse is all things are for the good of those who love him. Well, actually, when you read verse 28, you realize it is God works in all things for the good of those who love him. The Christian is secure. Those who love him have been, verse 28, called according to his purpose. God's great plan God, who from eternity planned everything, planned where we're to be born, planned when we're to die. Everything, all of life is under him. Some days our lives may not feel like that. Some days our lives might feel a wee bit out of control. Some days our lives feel almost pointless. Certainly this last year, has perhaps felt, well, I had plans. I had decided to do certain, I'd even decided to go on holiday. But that's all changed, and we were not in control of it. This verse tells us that God is in control of it. And God has a purpose. And those who are His have been called according to His purpose. We'll see 
in these few verses that the word call appears a few times. You see, that's how someone becomes a Christian. God calls them. He may do it through a friend. He may do it through a parent. He may do it through a preacher. He may do it through a Bible study leader. He may, he may do it through someone meeting you on the street. He may do it through someone writing a booklet and leaving it at your doorstep. But it is God calling. He says, Trevor, become a Christian. Follow me. It comes from him. And it's all to do with his purpose and his providence. God is sovereign. And we see this illustrated even more in the next few verses, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, sometimes that word foreknew is understood by some who would perhaps lessen God's sovereignty in this way. Well, God is so big, he knows what is going to happen. Not that he has planned it, but that he knows, he knows the future. And he knows those who will turn to him. That's what they say, what this verse and that word in this verse means. They restrict it to that. But I don't think the rest of the Bible would let us restrict it to that. For those God foreknew, the word know means intimate knowledge. Adam knew Eve. Israel knew God. Israel, this is Amos chapter 4, Israel knew God. Not in just kind of some sort of academic way. God also, we're told in Amos, knew Israel. Not in some kind of academic or formal way, but he knew them intimately. They were close. They were his people. These words we cannot reduce them to simply knowing the future. Some try to do that, but it is stronger than that. In fact, God, in all of eternity, looked into eternity and chose his children. Verse 29, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those who are Christians become brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the firstborn amongst those. So we're made to become like Jesus. And we hear that later on in this passage. We're made like Jesus. God chooses Israel. God chooses Jesus. God chooses his children. God chooses Jesus' brothers and sisters. We can't reduce God to a being who is just some kind of knowledge, a really good astrologer. We, we can't reduce God to that. It's much greater than that. It's much glorious, more glorious than that. God chose his children. And that ought not to raise questions in our mind. Martin Luther talks about this as he comments on these few verses. We ought not to raise questions about God and God's furnace. We cannot know the mind of God. Only God knows his own mind. We cannot plumb the depths of his mind to try and understand why. Rather, what we're to do from verse 29 and verse 30, which we'll move on to in just a second, is rejoice. We are so loved 
that the one true and living God has chosen us to be his children. We're so loved and we're so secure that from eternity past, God knew, foreknew his children. And he predestined his children to be his children. And that makes us absolutely secure. The Christian is secure. The next verse has been referred to historically, really from the 16th century, as the golden chain of salvation. Let's read it again. Let's rejoice in it as we read it. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God is so sovereign that somehow history works towards our calling. Those who are Christ's, those who are predestined, history organized. The circumstances are organized. Our moments are organized. God is so big, so over every moment in history that you will move to somewhere where you will hear the gospel. You will have someone who speaks the gospel to you. Maybe you're listening to this and you come from another part of the world and perhaps this is the very first time in your life you've heard about Jesus. Well, God has organized this. It's no accident that you decided to live in Belfast, study at Queens or Jordanstown. And you hear this stuff for the first time. It is no accident. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. So when he calls his children, he makes them right. He does everything necessary to make them right with him. He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And what does that mean? Well, our salvation is so secure that we can be considered those who are already glorified. This glorification obviously has a focus on the future, is looking towards what will happen on that last day when Jesus comes back and brings everyone, those who are his, to him, to live with him forever in eternity. Those who are in Christ will be with Christ forever. And that will be our glorification. We've had our justification. Then we will have our glorification but verse 30 tells us we are so secure, we're presently secure. In fact, it's a past tense word there, isn't it? He also glorified. This future of glorification is so secure, so certain, that Paul can speak of it in almost the past tense. Is this poetical rhetoric only? Well, no, it's a theological and spiritual reality that those who are Jesus's, those who have been called, have been predestined, those who have been justified, have been glorified already. Glorified now, but this glorification in the future is secure, is permanent. No one, nothing can take that away. And we see this in the next few verses. Maybe at times you feel God doesn't love me because I've gone through a particular thing. Well, we're not to think like that. We're so secure. Nothing can remove us from the grip of Jesus, from the grip 
of the gospel. We're glorified. See that past tense? This thing that will happen in the future is so real that we can speak of it in the past tense. So, the Christian is secure. Then he moves on to speak about our security. And he speaks of it in legal and love terms. Let's have a look. Verse 31. We're going to hear the legal terms. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spur his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He asks a series of rhetorical questions. And he raises the legal standing of the Christian. Whenever he speaks of what then shall we say, verse 31, in response to these things, these things reference everything everything that has gone before, not just the few verses beforehand, references everything. Chapter 1, where our sin is outlined. Chapter 3, where Jesus, we understand, is sent as a propitiation for our sin. Chapter 4, our faith, we exercise it in what Jesus has done for us, believing God's Word. And we're saved, we're made righteous in the way that Abraham was. Chapter 5, that peace which comes through faith, having been justified. Chapter 6, how we don't continue in sin. Chapter 7, we struggle with the reality on a daily basis of our sin. All of these things, all of the great story of the gospel, everything, what shall we say then in response to these things? It's all towards and heading towards our security and the certainty, the absolute certainty of our security. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christian, you may have loads of enemies and you may be aware of loads of enemies, but there's no one really who can be against you that will finish you off because God is for us. There's no one who could be, there's no one who could stand with any kind of accusation. Satan tries, <laughs> doesn't he? We feel Satan's accusations, but his words mean nothing. His words are empty. They're untrue because, you read there, God is for us. He asked the question, if God is for us, there's no one, no one at all in heaven or on earth could be against us. He goes on, verse 32, and, and we know that God is for us. Sometimes you might ask, does God love me? Don't look inside. Of course, we feel God's love, but just don't stay there. Look beyond yourself to the objective facts. And where does he lead us? In the rest of these verses, he leads us towards the cross. Verse 32, he who did not spur his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give all things? We're so secure, we're so reassured, not because of anything we've done, not because of any of our achievements, not because of any of our words, but rather in the gracious, glorious gift of the Lord Jesus, God's own Son. The Christian is so precious because for him or her, God's own Son has been given.
he didn't spur his own son, gave him up to the cross. And if that is the fact, if that is the case, how will he, verse 32, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? He's saying the same thing here, isn't he? He's going on to say that there is absolutely no one nor anything that will separate us from this incredible love of God. There's nothing that can take away our security as far as God is concerned. Here is our legal standing in front of God. There's a reference, of course, back to chapter 5. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, no one can because there's no one greater than God. God is the judge who has declared us just, who has declared us not guilty, who has declared us justified. There's no greater judge than God. And you see that verse 33? It is God who justifies. And verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one has a right to condemn because Jesus Christ has borne our sin. No one can say you murderer. No one can say you thief. No one can say you adulterer. No one can say because Jesus Christ has become all of those things. Look at verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Was Jesus' sacrifice acceptable to God? Well, yes. How do we know? Because he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the grave. And where is he now? Well, he's praying for us. We heard earlier on, maybe last week, wasn't it? That the Spirit groans in our behalf. The Spirit prays for us. Whenever we struggle with words, we just go, ah. The Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. He's praying for us. Who also is praying for us? Let's read verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who is raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You are so secure. The Spirit prays on your behalf whenever you struggle with the words, Jesus Christ is interceding for you at the right hand of God. We are so secure because we've been joined to Jesus. When God sees us, he sees Jesus. When God sees Jesus, he sees us, his brothers and sisters. Isn't that incredible? Just think of our legal standing in front of God. Think of the rights, all undeserved, of course. Think of the rights that we have in front of the true and the living God. Maybe at times you wonder about your legal standing. Maybe at times you wonder about how is God's love towards me? How can God love me? Maybe you've done something that you really regret. You've said something that you truly regret. And you think to yourself, God couldn't possibly love me. God's love is bound to have gotten less or changed towards me. His attitude's bound. 
Well, Paul moves on from the legal to the love. And he says, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These rhetorical questions. Paul plods through these rhetorical questions, and aren't they great for our souls? Don't they pastor us? These are the kinds of questions I'm sure perhaps you've asked. How can I stand in front of a holy God? How can God love me? In fact, there are probably times that, you know, I have distanced myself from God and His love has stopped somehow or varied or gone in a blip kind of thing. Well, no. He says, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Maybe there are times our experience is one that we might think questions God's love. What are the things that tempt you to walk away from the gospel, that tempt you to walk away from Jesus? What are those things? Well, are they anything like this in verse 35? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. These are the persecutions related to following Jesus. These are the persecutions which Paul himself felt new. I wonder, did they make him question God's love for him? These are the things that have the potential, don't they, to cause us to walk away, to stop trusting, to apostatize. These are those things. Trouble. What kind of difficulty are you experiencing? What kind of difficulty have you experienced? Hardship. The difficulties with following Jesus and trusting. For some people, it does cost them their lives. And the threat of that with, if you like, the sword hanging over you, about to take your neck off. How would you react? Would that be something that could potentially cause you to stop trusting, stop believing in Jesus? Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Even those things and the presence of those things in our lives, even those things which could cause us to question the love of Christ, it's a futile question. We may feel it. We may say it. Maybe not outwardly, inwardly perhaps. This is the experience of God's people because this was the experience of Jesus himself. And those who are Jesus's are being made to look like Jesus through the things that we go through. He makes us like Jesus and we need to be made like Jesus because imagine being glorified and still having these eyes. How could we ever look on the beauty of heaven? Imagine having glory, the incredible nature of glory, and having these ears. How could we ever hear the beauty and the incredible music of the angels who are praising God for all eternity? Imagine being glorified and having these hands and not knowing how to work in that kingdom. We're being made 
to be like Jesus, being changed to be like Jesus. These are the experiences of God's children. They're not counter to being one of Jesus' children. They're not counter, counter to being one whom God has predestined, whom God has justified, whom God has glorified. They're not counter to that or contradictory to that, not at all. Because look at verse 36. Here we've got a quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. Let me read it. As it is written in the book of Psalms, Psalm 44, verse 22, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What's going on in that psalm in Psalm 44? Well, to understand the individual quotes that Paul or Peter or John uses in the New Testament, you've got to go back and read the whole psalm. You should do that sometime. But when you read it, what you'll find is that all of the nations around Israel are persecuting Israel, God's children. All of the nations. And so they say, for your sake, God, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the normal experience of the Christian. Romans chapter 7 tells us what the normative, typical experience of the Christian is. That is struggle with sin. Not knowing why this is a reality in our lives because chapter 6 tells us we have, and chapter 5 tells us we have peace with God. Why? And we've been changed. We've been given God's Holy Spirit. Chapter 7 tells us that. Chapter 8 reassures us of that. But why is it the case? Why is it the case, chapter 8, verse 36? Why is it the case that we face these things? Outline verse 35. Well, because this is the typical experience of one of God's children. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We're powerless. We're weak. In front of the executioner. In front of the butcher. We're powerless. We're weak. We feel it. Is that contrary to God's purposes? Has God lost control or lost interest and he's just left us there? No. This is precisely his purposes for us. This is his plan. So the Christian is secure. Our security is legal. Our security ensures God's love. Or rather, we're reassured of God's love in our security. And then finally, that security is indestructible. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can kill it. Nothing can remove it. Nothing can change it. Listen to these words. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Despite the circumstance, if you're one of God's children, if you're in Christ, if you've been joined to Christ, you're a conqueror. Conqueror through the hardship, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the danger of the sword. You are glorified. You're so secure. And listen, it's absolutely indestructible. Cast iron guarantee. Look at the potential enemies. Verse 38, death. 
Every single person will die. You know that. I had the privilege of conducting a funeral up in St. Nicholas's Church on Wednesday. And the folks, there were about 25 or so in the building. Most of them, I guess, it appeared to me at least, didn't really engage with Christianity or Christian things before. And as, as I was speaking, it suddenly struck me, you know, every single one will have at some point an order of service, a funeral order of service with their names in the front of it. I said that. That's the reality. That's the reality for you who are watching. I will have, there'll one day be an order of service printed, funeral service for Trevor Johnson. Now, will death take away the security that I have in Jesus? No. Absolutely not. Not even death. Not even death. That most powerful of enemies, not even death. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, and he goes on, nor life. There's nothing in this life, nothing in our circumstances, nothing in our present day, nothing in our moments. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons. You see the contrast he has here is the opposites almost. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons. Demons exist. They serve Satan. Satan's clever and busy. And the demons help him. And they do their best. But they're defeated. And even the angels will not or can't affect change as far as God is concerned with our salvation. They can't remove it. They can't damage it. They can't take it away. Even them, angelic beings, they're pretty powerful, supernatural, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future. Do you fear the present? Do you fear the future? You don't need to. Anything, any powers, the powers are the evil powers. The world, the flesh, the devil, those powerful things, those powerful elements which distract us from Jesus. Everything that's thrown at us by those elements, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of those things, any powers, anything, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing. Listen to this. This is where he's heading, and this is incredible. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you need to hear that today? Do you need to be reassured of that? Well, hear it. Hear Paul's argument. Hear the cast-iron guarantee. For those who are in Jesus, nothing Nothing, nothing. Please hear this. Please be secure. Please be certain. If you're a Christian, that is. If you're not a Christian, do, do, do well, hear this and please put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in what Jesus has done for you. 
respond and hear God's call when he says, repent and believe. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. And as you come to Jesus, you will be secure. That security is indestructible. God's love is secure. Our legal standing in front of God is absolutely secure, for the Christian is secure because we have been called. We've been chosen. We've been called. We can be that certain. Is it arrogant to be certain? It's actually arrogant not to be certain. Saying that we know more than God, we've got a greater insight into God greater than what his word allows for. We can be certain because we're secure. And that security is because of Jesus. Let's pray. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for sending the Lord Jesus. We praise you that you are the sovereign, loving, true God. We praise you for that indestructible security that there is for the child of God, for the person who is in Christ. We thank you for our legal standing before you. We thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus, that this love is indestructible, that this love is never-ending, that this love is freely given. We praise you for this. And we rest on all of these words. In Jesus' name, amen.